0: The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. Uh, we're going to slowly make our way there. I want to go uh, pray for us and then we will start. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible book from John. I pray that uh, you will open our eyes to see what you have for us to learn as a church from this book. You will challenge us. You will motivate us. You will uh, give us hearts to see the significance of it and what it means for our lives and wisdom and teach us today from your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, President Truman, um, probably know him from, uh, he's the one who gave the approval for dropping of the atomic bombs, it's a good uh, illustration for 4th of July, not really, but um, President Truman is the one that gave the approval for uh, the dropping of the two atomic bombs, and um, he has a famous quote where he says this, Everybody has the right to express what he thinks. That, of course, lets the crackpots in. But if you cannot tell a crackpot when you see one, then you ought to be taken in. He starts off by saying, and this is a, a funny quote I read from him, or read about him and from him, is that everyone has a right to express what they think. And the, the problem with that is, with, with, that, uh, with that right of expression it oftentimes allows in for bad theology, so or bad bad thoughts in general. Think of of politics. Everyone has their own opinion. Um, the more opinions you get, the the craziest uh, the crazier responses you get. But I think that's true of scripture as well. And what happens is, even in the early church, we see that the apostles had the the biblical message they received from Christ, and they're going out and spreading that ma- message. Well, the problem is, is that some people left the church, and that's what we have going on in 1 John is these people are leaving the church and they start spreading a false message. They start teaching their own version of the story and it's no longer the biblical story. And because of that, these people start teaching the story and claiming to have authority and then other people start following after them. And this is where we get bad theology and bad teaching from. Well, John's writing the book of First John and even the Gospel of John, and he's addressing this bad theology, and he's showing dangers of this bad theology and dangers of following after these people. But I think also in this, and what we'll see in chapter 4, is that our theology, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe it teaches, has implications for our life as well. It's not just head knowledge. We don't just learn the Bible for the sake of, of learning knowledge not to make us puffed up and to think that we're smarter than everyone else. The goal is is that God's word will be stored up in our hearts, and then it will change our lives. That's what we see going on here, and John's going to show us today that theology always leads to practicology. That what we know about Christ, the more we gain knowledge about him, it then changes our life. It has implications. Last week, we saw that one of those implications was love, and a test whether you're a true believer or not, is whether you love your brother in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And now he's going to take that a step further, and he's going to show the implications why what we believe about God matters about the way that we love one another and has implications to that. He starts off by saying this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John's then going to equate this, and we saw only a few chapters ago, he equates this with, an ant- with, with the Antichrist. He says there's many Antichrists among us. What is an Antichrist? He says those who deny that Christ came in the flesh. He's, in, he's combating an early form of what's called Gnosticism. And I explained what that meant previously. But they said that Christ didn't truly come in the flesh, and now John is combating that. And he says, beloved, brothers and sisters, he, he's showing endearment to them. And he says this. Do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Think about this. He's been combating these people who left the church. And the way that we know that they're not truly of us is because they left. They left and they started teaching a false message. And now he says many false prophets have gone out. They have left us. They have departed. They've gone out into the world. So what's this mean for us? Why is this significant? Because these people were initially part of the church. They were not atheists or people outside the church saying, hey, you should believe this. No, they started off inside the church. They started off proclaiming the message of the gospel. They started preaching the Bible, and then they left. Why is that problematic or why is that dangerous? Because the attack wasn't from outside. was from inside and it looked close enough to the gospel message that it was enough for people to be confused by it and to start following after it think about this when you go into your local target or walmart and you go to the christian section of the bookstore what do you see you see see these people that culture deems as christianity this is the biggest selling marketers in america or possibly even the world walmart and target what do they view as christianity you have joel Osteen who holds to a prosperity gospel his books are there you have a guy named td jakes who holds to an early church heresy called modalism his books are there culture deems that as christianity these people started off among us and then they left. This is what the world sees as the Christian message. This is why Paul is I mean John is warning us. Is because they start off in the church and then they leave and now the world sees this as the Christian message. It's easy to get confused. And John warns, be careful. Watch out for these people test their message. Well, how do you test it? How do we test The message that others proclaim to be the Christian message. It's to see whether it aligns with the gospel message, the biblical message. So that means we have to know our word. We have to know God's word. We have to study God's word. To see if that which others are proclaiming aligns with scripture. It also means as pastors. We have to watch out for ourselves to make sure that we're preaching not our own story, not the message that we want to come up with. When we go to the Bible, it's not, hey, what can I come up with that's clever and catchy and will entice people? But our goal is, what was the biblical author's intended message, and how does that relate to us today? We're called to bridge the gap. We can't understand what it means for us today if we didn't know what it meant to them. The goal is understanding the biblical message. And I think it's important as you study your Bible and as I study your Bible, our goal is not to come up with application right off. Application is extremely important. But if you don't understand the original message, we can't apply it to our lives today. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. If you guys want to turn with me, I'm going to read a few verses from there. Oftentimes. Listen to what Paul warns the Corinthians about. But I'm afraid, verses 3, but I'm afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. So how did how did Eve get deceived? The serpent tricked her. Did God really say this? Is what the serpent said? He's trying to distort the original message. He deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we have proclaimed, or if you have received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you have accepted a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in preaching, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things goes on actually we will end there i've made this plain to you in all things actually i am i'm sorry i'm actually going to read this by this you'll know the spirit every spirit that confesses jesus christ has come in the flesh and every spirit that does not confess jesus is not from god this is the spirit of the Antichrist, this is John, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Think about what Paul is saying here and then what John reiterates as well. John has been saying, we have to watch out because their message is to deceive you just as. Their goal is to try to deceive us. And John is going on to the same thing. Now think about this. Doesn't it sound like doctrine is important? Paul just says their goal is to confuse you, to bring a different Jesus to you, or a different gospel to you. Those are the words he uses. They're coming with the gospel message with just enough to distort it, to make it heresy. And he says, brothers, be careful. Satan is a deceiver. I think this is why so many of the earlier church documents and and you have confessions are focused on who is Jesus. Because they're trying to distort that message. And they're trying to guard us because of all those from outside trying to distort the message. John is saying, Know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus or does not confess Jesus is not from God. Doug Wilson, a famous pastor and writer, uh, if you haven't read any of his books, he's got uh, phenomenal books. His son is Indy Wilson, who's also a fiction writer. He's written a lot of really good books as well. But uh, he says every Saturday night before for uh, dinner before church, uh, the following day, he says what I asked my kids. So he sits around the dinner table with all his grandkids and kids and he asks him this question. What is the Bible about? Sum it up in one sentence. And this is uh, his summary. What's the point of the whole Bible? And he has his kids memorize this theme. He says, the hero kills the dragon and gets the girl. It's a beautiful summary. You yeah, have 15 that the promise that one day Eve's seed is going to crush the head of the serpent and then that serpent's compared to a dragon as well. You see that in Revelation and then Jesus is coming to crush the head of the serpent and rescue his bride the church so the the hero kills the dragon and gets the girl. Beautiful illustration. But think about this. In that small sentence there's so much in there. There's so much theology in that. It summarizes a whole narrative and summarizes thousands of pages together in one sentence. And I think when John says this this statement, anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's very easy for anybody to make that statement. We all have friends who say they are believers. It's easier, it's easy to confess that you are a believer. But here's the problem. Here's the difficulty. What does that statement actually mean? Does he mean anyone who says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, they are a believer? I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think like Doug Wilson's quote, that statement is packed full of theology. It's full of biblical responsibility and thinking through what it actually means. First of all, he says, Jesus Christ. That word Christ is the idea of a messiah. Throughout all the Old Testament, we have this, this hope, this longing that one day the seed of evil was going to come and fix the sin problem. And they're waiting for that seed, for that child who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then Abraham is promised one day his seed is going to come and make his, the descendants as numerous as the stars. And the nations were going to be blessed through him. Then David was promised one day this king is going to come from him. And he will sit on the throne forever. Then Isaiah is promised one day this one is going to come and he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. He's going to take our sins upon himself on the cross. And the result is the lion will once again lie down with the lamb. The sin problem will be fixed. I think that's what John has in mind when he says Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the true Messiah. Anyone who claims that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the promised one. It's very rich in theology. And he says has come in the flesh. The eternal God has become flesh. Anyone who proclaims that. The eternal God has become flesh. Is truly a believer. What John is saying saying, if these people can make this statement, if these people can truly believe this statement, they are from the Lord. If this story is true about their lives, if this is the narrative of their lives, that is true, then they are a believer. What story is true about your life? What's the narrative of your life? Does scripture define your story? Does belief in the story define your life? Is there another narrative rolling your story? What fills up your mind? What fills up your time? That's what defines your story. If we we mapped out your time on a regular basis, or we mapped out your thoughts on a regular basis, what's filling up your mind? Are you thinking about Christ? Are you treasuring and marveling in the fact that he died on our behalf? Is the gospel saturating your soul? Are you treasuring Christ? Christ, truly your treasure, as we read from Philippians 3 this morning and as we started the service. Is Jesus sufficient for you? That's the test. Is your story the fact that Jesus is your story? Or do you have other narratives that control your life and your time and your thoughts? That's the test that he's giving. And he says, anyone who doesn't fill that test is not from God every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God or does not confess Jesus is not from God and this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already little children you are from God and you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world they are from the world therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is, go back to our our illustration with Walmart and with Target and with TBN. The reason the world loves them is because their message tickles their ears. It's a, do these things and your life will be better. Follow these steps and your marriage will be better come to Jesus and you get this and that and money. That's the message they're offering. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't want to hear, come to Jesus, you'll get a car. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be resolved. That's what people want to hear. In essence, you don't need Jesus. You want these things. Your gospel message is things and not Jesus. No one wants to hear, come to Jesus, and you will get Christ. In the midst of life, difficulties, though it may be incredibly hard, Christ will be there with you through those. It's still going to be difficult, but you get Jesus. No one wants that message. We want a life of ease. We worship ease and not Christ. But the world loves the life of ease. They love the life. is different from theirs come to Christ and you get Jesus he is sufficient I've used this illustration before but John Piper in one of his books um, was talking about if you could get to heaven and all your friends were there and you had everything you ever wanted you were no longer sick no longer hurt any problems you had in your life were gone but Jesus was not there Happy. and I think that's the message we have here the people are saying come to Jesus and all these things will be better but here's the problem it's no heaven if Christ is not there we're promised persecutions we're promised trials but we're also promised I will be with you always that's the beauty of the gospel That's the promised hope that in the midst of marriage difficulties, in the midst of a problem child in your your family, Jesus is there with you. When you're wondering, are you ever going to get married? When you're wondering, am I going to be able to pass this class? I've been struggling with it for all this time. Jesus is there with you. You're not promised great results. You're promised Jesus. knows God listens to us if you know God you will not depart and leave with these false messages you will not follow after these false things you will stay with the biblical truth scripture will be enough it will satisfy it will fill up your heart it will change your life beloved let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born from God and whoever knows God And knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. I think what John is saying here is become who you are. you guys get that? He's now went on this whole thing about knowing Christ. And the significance of knowing Christ. And how knowing Christ is different from following this false message. And that if you truly know Christ, you will do these things. You will follow after him. And now he's giving us application to knowing Christ. It's not just a random thought. He's saying, become who you are. You are new in light of Christ. Christ has made you new. Your old has gone away. Your past has gone away. He has clothed you in his righteousness. It's no longer when the father looks down at you, he no longer looks and sees Adam, the great sinner, or Jeremy, the great sinner. He sees someone new made in Christ. He sees our new identity. He doesn't see Simon. He now sees Peter. That's what we see here. He's telling us, become who you are. That's why this is not, not antinomianism in early church heresy where it says the law doesn't matter. And this is not liberal or legalism saying, do these things and God will love you. It's not saying that. He's not saying the law doesn't matter, and he's not saying do these things and God will love you. No, he's saying in light of the fact that we've been made new in Christ, we now have liberty to go and love others. We're learning to be who we are. The famous uh, German theologian Gerhard Forty once said this: he described sanctification as learning what it means to be justified in Christ make this a, a little more simple or to change the, the terminology as we grow in christ it's not that we're becoming more righteous our righteousness is in jesus so the moment you put your faith in christ you're never more righteous than that moment you will never become more righteous because jesus christ has been imputed to us it's been placed upon us we receive jesus's righteousness So then, what does the rest of Christian life look like? It's learning what it means to be in Jesus. So that means we don't have to work for God's approval. We've already received it. So those times you struggle, you may struggle with some type of sin, and you wonder, does God love me? Yes. You are in Jesus. That's liberating. In Jesus, and you can think upon Him, you can rest in Him. It gives us freedom to obey, and that's why all these declarations and all these commands now, in, in light of the fact, that the indicative, if you want to think of it that way, that we are now in Christ, this is what we are called to do. We're called to love one another because anyone who loves who is in Christ loves his brother. We talked about in Bible study this morning. That uh, our love for one another, and even in marriage, the love for one another—it's a reflection of the gospel. Why is it a reflection of the gospel? Because that ultimately looks back to the Trinity. We are created to be in fellowship. That's why God says in in the Garden of Eden, "It's not good for man to be alone." Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because they were created as communal people. We are created to be in fellowship. Why were we created in fellowship? Because God fellowship. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in perfect harmony for all eternity. And we were created in that image. This is why we need community, why we need fellowship. This is the beauty of marriage. We get to experience a small glimpse of that fellowship that existed all in eternity. This verse oftentimes is one that is very much misquoted. I think everyone has heard this, this. People quote judge me people quote this all the time and they don't read it in the context we, we've mentioned this before with John even reiterating this idea that yes God is love but how does John use love what's the significance of this love out of love he sends the son to die on our behalf sin is addressed because of this love if we ignore sin we miss the rest of the biblical narrative we miss all of the Bible's story Love is rooted in the fact that God sent his son to die for our sins. If you ignore sin, you miss the beauty of God's love. You don't see it all. Listen to what he says in verse 9 in light of this. In this, in the love of God, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. now we're going to see what the love looks like. This is what he's saying. What does love look like? God is love. Now we're going to see what it looks like. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Do you see that now? Love cannot be divorced from sin. So when people say, stop judging me, God God is love. You can't judge others. God is love. Because I love you, I see your sin, and I'm calling you out in your sin. I'm gently encouraging you to flee from it. That's exactly what Jesus does. He sees sin, and he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He loves us, therefore he comes and dies on our behalf. That's what love does. It addresses the sin problem. It doesn't ignore it this illustration before my mentor would often say this, God is not a divine janitor who sees all this dust and all this filthiness and he lifts up the rug and sweeps it under there and acts like it's not there. That's not who God is. No, he comes and lays down his life on a cross in in, in order to appease the wrath of God and take that sin. He takes our sin to the cross. He doesn't ignore it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love God, we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified of the fact the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. have this coworker named jeremy who every time you see him he makes you cringe he does something that gets under your skin it really does frustrate you so when he comes in the room you try to avoid him he frustrates you he did something maybe he wronged you in some way so every time you see him you try to avoid him you try to hide from him and every time he talks you think that hypocrite frustrates me so mean, or so conniving, or whatever word you want to come up with. Now think about this. Look at your sins throughout your whole life. Look at everything that you've done. of our sin, in the midst of the people yelling crucify him, he's on the cross for their sins. The same people that were nailing him to the cross, he dies on their behalf. We are that frustrating person. We are the person that is annoying to someone. And yet Jesus died on their behalf. And if Jesus has done that for us, if he has died for us and done that on our behalf, how much more should we love others? He says this, Jesus says this, or Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Is it not enough for us? Or, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I've been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? So here in the Gospel of John, he's saying, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now, in 1 John, he says, no one has seen the Father. So what is the, what's the significance of this? I think we have uh, the same exact phrase used here down in verse 13. By this we know and abide in him and he in us because he has given us the Spirit. And we have seen and testified. So we have seen him. The same phrase is used. And testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. I think what john is getting at and i think the relation the reason he uses the same phrases for both of these is that john's saying we have received grace the very beginning of the uh, first john he says we've seen this message we've heard this message we've seen it with our eyes we've touched this message and now he's talking about love we've seen love displayed on the cross we saw christ crucified we know the significance of it Therefore, how could we not extend grace to others? How could we not love? We've seen the ultimate picture of love displayed before our eyes on the cross. We literally have seen love in the cross. And now that motivates us to love others. Are you loving other people? Are you bitter? Are you angry with someone? Are you not extending grace or forgiveness because someone has wronged you? Listen how John concludes this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is the same idea of the son of God. The reason he calls him the son of God is that's rooted in the Old Testament. Um, 2 Samuel 7, uh, Psalm 2 calls him the son. This promised Messiah will be the son of God love is perfected in us how is love perfected in us he goes on to say this how's it done it's through marveling in the fact that he sent his son for us on the cross so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he because as he is, is so also will be in the world Fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We believe or we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or whom he has seen cannot love God who has he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love, how can you love God who you haven't seen? It's the the less to greater argument. So our love, it's a command, but it's not a command in order to receive approval. It's learning to be who you are in Christ. As you learn who you are in Christ, you'll slowly love each other more. So dive into the scripture. Spend time in God's word. Surround yourself with believers. Learn what forgiveness and grace and love will how you do it. It's learning who you are in Christ. You've been given a new identity. It's like as if the government has given you a new name, moved you to a new location, and now you're just learning what it looks like to live out in this new life. That's what the Christian life is like. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to dive into your word. Do this now as we go to the, time of the